Welcome to the Vision Podcast, a podcast that explores news, topics, and information of interest to the faculty, staff, and friends of the Mississippi State University College of Arts and Sciences. I'm your host, Karen Brown. And I'm your host, Sam Calfer. Today, we are joined by Dr. Benjamin Koch, an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration, where he teaches international relations. Ben, welcome to the Vision Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here to discuss this important topic. But first, I was hoping you could just introduce yourself. Can you tell us a bit about who you are and how you came to Mississippi State? Uh, sure. So um, I guess the the academic journey started at Texas A&M, where I got my PhD. And then I spent uh, two stints at Texas A&M's campus in Doha, Qatar, I am a specialist in international relations, specifically conflict studies, uh, which means in my case, I teach classes on American foreign policy, international relations, international conflict, international terrorism, uh, cyber and international policy. And um, the foundation for the teaching is my focus on non-state actors involvement in conflict. So this in my time has really encompassed uh, private security and military and security companies, as well as uh, analysis of peacekeeping operations and terrorist organizations. And from that, I've had um, quite a few varied experiences. So I've, I've contracted uh, with Special Operations Command on a couple of occasions to deliver analysis in kind of a, another area of my uh, research agenda that has less bearing on today. I also do a, a fair amount of work on defense industrial policies, uh, both the US and internationally, and um, recent work with US Cybercom, or at least sponsored by US Cybercom, kind of looking at the interactions and cross-domain engagement. Um, that's kind of a quick summary of my research and how I got here. In terms of how I got to Mississippi State, I'm just uh, fortunate to be here. I've been uh, at Mississippi State since 2018, and so uh, seen some changes, but certainly not as much as, as others, and um, just really like my department and the students. Uh, one thing about Mississippi State I've taught um, all over the U.S. and all over the world is Mississippi State has exceptionally bright students who are willing to engage some of these difficult topics, like what we're going to discuss tonight. And that's very helpful from a teaching perspective because it allows you to ask questions and uh, put them in positions where they have to defend things that they might not personally believe in or that um, is very difficult for them to do. But that's, I think, at the heart of the academic exercise. And just curious, Ben, how did you become interested in this area of study? That's a, that's a, uh, yeah. on the bad days, I ask myself that question. All the time. <laughs> um, so I've always had a natural history or natural interest in, in kind of history and how nation states, states are shaped and kind of how we ended up with the modern state system that we have um, in undergrad that was probably the driving uh, intellectual focus for my studies was just how, how did we get to where we are? And that process, um, for better or for worse, historically is the organization of force. So how do we as a species um, 
identify the use of force that's acceptable and the use of force that's not. And then within societies, how do we regulate that into some kind of political social contract that enables governance? And so um, that led to kind of broad historical basis, mostly folks in the Middle East uh, and Europe in terms of, of courses. And then when the Iraq war started, um, I was not yet in graduate school, but when it started, uh, I was still in college when it started, the second one, the kind of the breakdown of the state became something that was really interesting to me. And when we start to, to really dig into the, the first thing that states need to provide for their, their populations, um, there is disagreement amongst scholars about this, but I'm I'm in the camp that security is the is the first condition of the state that um, the base function is for people to feel safe in their homes and feel safe going to and from activities, whether that's economic activities such as work or uh, social services. So we see, especially in conflict environments, um, inability of governments to deliver public goods, you know, trash collection, clean water, electricity. Um, this is foundational to the human condition. And um, I had a professor in undergrad who did a lot of work in Liberia, post-Civil War Liberia. So pretty, pretty rough environment. And his main point is that people are generally people, right? Like as a species, we, we, we generally want very similar things. Um, or the majority of the populations do at least, you know, you want to be safe, you want to have a family, you want to be able to work a job, you want some sense of security. People are just people. Um, and that led me to, to studying private security companies because um, in the absence of government or in the substitution of government, uh, we see this a lot as well. We are now seeing an era where governments, um, partly due to public administration research in the 90s, um, use contracting extensively as a function. Uh, and there's good and bad in that. I, I don't take a quality or a normative position on this, uh, but it's still something that, um, you know, I thought I would tire of after a near decade, but here I am and I got you know, a dozen things that need to get done next year. So um, that's how I got to it. I was going to say there, there will never probably be a lull in research topics for you. Mm -hmm. No, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like it. Um, I had one colleague ask, "Just how do you, how do you, how do you deal with the fact that most of your classes are on on um, topics that often find humanity in its worst position?" Mm. And I still don't have an answer for that. Um, other than I warn my students, <laughs> "Today's gonna be another one of those days. You you probably aren't leaving like super happy. Um, it's not the intent, but you know, this class is on terrorism or this class is on." conflict um and you know diplomacy and there's there's some biases in how scholars study uh how political scientists in particular but scholars generally study conflict um you know, we we typically study the conflict uh even though most of us are actually interested in peace um mm. you'd think you would study peace more than you would study conflict if you're interested in peace but um there's some internal uh, inconsistencies but it's no different than um, studying cancer, right? We study cancer. We don't study healthy, mm. right? What do we what do we put our, our right. and, and that's good and that's right to do. Um, but it's very similar with my studies. 
And this is a very difficult time during the heightened conflict between Israel and Palestine. And although it's a contentious discussion, we thought it was important to have a conversation with somebody like you that has that research and background in fields such as international relations, geopolitics, U.S. foreign policy, in order to educate uh, ourselves and our audience. In times like these, it's important to acknowledge the complexity of the situation and use all the resources and intelligence to understand and make well-informed decisions. So that's what we want to do here today. With that in mind, can you provide an overview of the of the Israel-Palestine conflict, both historically and in the context of the most recent events for listeners who may not be familiar? I know that was a mouthful, but we wanted to set the stage that we're, we're educating. Yes. No, um, I think the, so one, one thing we're going to spend some time with today's discussion is uh, moral equivalency, right? And I would argue the danger of, of drawing uh, moral equivalency between actors. Um, that's something that people need to wrestle with, political leaders wrestle with, and then nation states themselves have different policies on this and have to wrestle with. The reason why I start with that is um, providing the historical overview. Part of that moral question, I do think it's moral, not ethics, uh, is where do you start the history? Okay, so are, when, are, when are we actually starting this discussion? So are we starting it on October 7th? That will very much condition how I think people, the tools that we would apply to interpret current events. Versus are we starting in the second intifada, right, 2003-ish? Are we starting in the first intifada? Are we starting in the Yom Kippur War of 1973? Are we starting the, in um, the Six-Day War in 1967? Are we starting with um, the Declaration of Israeli Independence in 48? Are we starting in the conflict in 47? Are we starting with the King David Hotel bombing uh, that... Um, who he eventually became prime minister of Israel. Um, Benign, he also wins a Nobel Prize, right? He he helps execute that that attack, right? Um, are we starting with the Balfour Declaration in 1917, right? It's it's a I think it's about 60 words, uh, but it has uh, the British had control of what was at that time called the Palestinian mandate, or they expected to have control of it after World War I with the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and that declaration essentially committed the British government to an Israeli or to a Jewish state. They're, these terms are not the same, right? Jews and Israelis are not the same. Most Israelis are Jews, but you don't have to be a Jew to be an Israeli, right? They have about 20% of their population is Arab. So those are the, the term, you know, words matter. Um, but on the Belfort Declaration as well, it also says that the British will ensure um, essentially the religious freedom of the individuals who will currently live in what was then the Palestinian territory of the Ottoman Empire. Or are we going back to the first Zionist conference in 1898? Um, so when we think about, I think it was in Switzerland, when we think about this, this first um, conference, the, the anti-Semitism in Germany and Russia, right? We obviously think about the Holocaust and things 50 years in, in the past, but the, the rise in anti-Semitism was sufficiently large throughout the 19th century that people started writing and then actively organizing for a Jewish state for protection. Now, are we gonna go further back? 
right? Are we actually going to go into the Ottoman Empire? Are we going to think about that throughout different periods of the Ottoman Empire, the area that we know of Israel and the Palestinian territories um, experienced sometimes centuries of what certainly what we would call today peace, um, you know, absence of large scale conflict. Uh, but there are also centuries, of, or at least decades, of intense violence. Okay, so when we think about that, and I, I did it chronologically, um, I inverted that chronologically and intentionally because um, different aspects, especially of the 20th century, is where I almost env I envy philosophy sometimes, right? Because in philosophy, what do you <laughs> right. do? Right, you write a book, and what do you do? You spend half the book telling what your terms are, and then you make an argument with the other half, uh, which is fantastic because you have to do that. So when we think about this conflict, are we going? What what aspect of that story do you want to emphasize? And there are clear um, cases. If you're a pro-Israel, if you're a pro-Palestinian, these are what you promote. Right. So if we think especially of the founding of Israel, if you're pro-Israel, you go back to the Delfort, the, the Belfort Declaration. You look at the Holocaust. You look at the communities of Jews who have been continuously in that region for millennia. And you say, here is the lineage that we have for these territories. If you're pro-Palestinian, you often will go back to the Ottoman Empire and say, well, this was a protectorate, lived in peace. It had a small mi minority Jewish population with a larger Arab population. And for the most part, it functioned pretty well. Um, and we think of fast forwarding, the Zionists come in, they take prop land that Palestinians were on. And you emphasize, especially in 1948, the roughly 600,000 Palestinians who, for lack of a better term, were evicted from land that they occupied under declaration of the Israeli state. Well, then you go back to and say, well, Israel was attacked when they declared their independence as the British uh, withdrew from, um, at that time it was Palestine, and the Israeli state was declared. They were attacked, and like most states would, they fought back, but then they took extra territory that was not part of the, U the original UN convention that essentially sanctioned a Jewish state, right? So what, which, which part are we emphasizing. And that is really important when we start to think about setting this stage. Now, in terms of context, um, obviously that was exceptionally brief. And I didn't intentionally, mm -hmm. didn't talk about their neighbors. Um, because when we when we deal with this particular conflict, it's not Israeli and Palestinian, or at least I don't think that's always the healthiest way to think about this conflict. Um, oftentimes it's Israeli and Arabs, Israeli and Palestinians, or Israelis and Egyptians, or Jordanians. Um, we do see conflict within the Palestinian uh, population itself, right? So especially uh, when Hamas wins the democratic, uh, well, at the time it was a democratic election in Gaza, right? There is violence between uh, Fatah and uh, Hamas. Right in terms of the leadership, and we see this. Right, this is actually pretty common for. Um, not states in civil war, but states that are experiencing um, tremendous amounts of conflict when ethnicity becomes a cross-cutting variable in the conflict. Like these things are not unusual. We just see it more often in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or read about it. Maybe we don't necessarily see it, though in today's world, we see all of these things um, that underlie this conflict. Um, and then obviously, what do you do with the Holocaust? And how does that end up playing 
into not just the creation of the the a Jewish state, or it does become an Israeli state, uh, but what does the world, what's the world's obligation when states are committing genocide? Right? We have we haven't arguably we have an answer for that now. That answer didn't really show up uh, until 1997, 1998. Right? The 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 principle that the UN and other states must intervene to prevent war crimes, crimes against humanity, humanity, genocide. Um, right. But that's half a century later. So the reason why I have all of these and I intentionally kind of dot these things around is what often happens, especially with people who are really passionate for good reasons on this issue, they're going to hang on to one aspect of whatever that history is. And then that becomes their, um, central foundation from which to justify their position. And as a scholar, I think it's really important that we take a step back and not try to establish um, who has ownership or who has the rights or who, like, where does the story start? It really needs to be, how do these different factors affect the story that we're watching now? Um, because if you're, if you're looking for an absolute you know, justification for one side or the other. And this is not, I would argue, moral equivalency in this particular case. We'll, we'll talk about Hamas October 7th, particularly like the differences between a state-sanctioned action and a terrorist attack. Um, these, fundamentally, there is not necessarily a first cause uh, for this conflict. And that- Or one we, cause, right? Right, right. We think about it like an infinite regression of causes, right? Where do you decide to start may end up determining where you finish. Um, and a, from a scholar position and as an educator, that's actually what I enjoy most about the teaching dynamic is that, um, you know, different people will disagree with me, of course, but I think college and education in general is, uh, it's about many things. But one thing that is really important in my classrooms is that I, I help students be able to move off their positions from whatever extreme there are towards the middle. It doesn't mean that, oh, you, you know, change what they believe. No, no, no. But if if you have a student who is just adamant that that um let's pick a that caramel corn is better than uh oh, cheesy corn yeah <laughs> right right that it's just it has to be this and then we should not eat anything else right well okay that's fine like believe that and eat caramel corn the rest of your life but give these other options a try because like the truth is that that maybe for you caramel corn is all you ever need but but maybe you're missing out on something that you need to be exposed to. And I think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, from a teaching exercise is really good at that because um, there is so much violence and there's so much repeated violence over different time windows that it gives us an opportunity to really think about our own values, our own value system, how we think about news, how we think about information, and give people an opportunity to say, this is why this is so hard. I like to tell students intractable problems are intractable because they're intractable. They're like, oh, that's circular. Do we tell us not to do that? Yes, it is. I, I understand. It's a completely circular argument. But it's recognition that really smart people and really passionate and really caring people have worked really hard for peace. Right. And the reason why we're not getting that are some of the, the factors that we can explain in classes, right? And it's not, it's not such a simple one-sided position. Yeah, I appreciate that answer so much and appreciate you 
you know, explaining it in that way uh, where you start the story from really colors your understanding of it. And, you know, so often I think we want to look back at history to get a clear answer, but so often, and this is a good example, really digging into the history just muddles it up even more. It makes it more complicated, but that's what actually happened. And, you know, even though that's frustrating, I think it, you know, keys us into the situation that we're in, just like everyone else has been in in the past when they try to solve this issue. Like it is complicated and there's not just one answer. So uh, be open to that. That complexity um, is really the only way to move forward um, in order to to do the best we can. I don't think there is an absolute right or wrong, but just to be well informed and, and try our best. And so, yeah, I really appreciate that. And so you mentioned October 7th and something that I've heard more during this conflict is Hamas. So what exactly is Hamas and what is its relationship to the whole of Palestine? And how does that relation, how should that relationship color our understanding of the more recent events? Yeah, that's great. You probably hear me click here. There's a couple. So what is Hamas? That is an interesting question because of, of two things. So first, the U.S. government would say Hamas is a terrorist organization. They are classified as a terrorist organization. We typically define terrorism as the use of extra normal violence in order to the use or the threat. So you can have fear in there. So it's the use or the threat of extra normal violence for a political purpose that targets an audience larger than its immediate target or victim. Mm. Okay. So there's, there's several moving parts here that, that need to, to come out of that. The first is this idea of threat or use of violence. So you can, you can terrorism, just the threat of it. And I don't just mean like psychological fear or engagement. I, I mean, um, you know, I had people call, call me on October 8th and like, Hey, Hamas has called for a global jihad. My daughter is going to X, Y, and Z, or my son is going over here, or my family is taking this vacation. Are you concerned that something's going to happen in the, you know, in the United States is where most of you are. I was like, no, and then I, you know, where are you going? Oh, we're going to this place. We're going to that place. Okay. They have armed security. It's fine. Like, don't worry about it. Right. I'm actually going to a public place in Washington with no security. Maybe I should be a little more, but when we think about that, that's fear, right? That is one of the functions of terrorism is to be able to use fear and violence, but it doesn't always have to be violence. The next is what we call extra normal violence. This is what separates things that we might think of as criminal, like a crime, murder. You're killing a human being, murder right? What's the difference between murder and extra normal? Well, legally speaking in the U.S., it actually gets a little dicey, but it, I think humanity, we can kind of recognize this, right? You, you can see it, right? Um, uh, throwing grenades into a house full of women and children. That's extra normal, right? That's not what we would typically, right. like the U.S. courts would struggle with you know, that would be a mass murder. And, and in the U.S., you would have a, a, a murder charge for each one of those people killed. That's different, right? That's not what we're, that's, we can tell that extra normal is different. Next is that there has to be a political purpose. Terrorism requires that there be a political purpose for the violence. So when, when I teach this, this would be, um, you know, the United States leads the world mass shootings. Mass shootings as defined as two or more victims. Um 
a number of years ago, there was a large mass shooting in Las Vegas involving Jason L. Dean at a country music um, venue. He's a country music artist. Well, you know, that happened in real time as in while I was teaching an international terrorism class. And so they're like, oh, that's terrorism. I was like, let's let's slow down. OK, right. It's extra normal violence. It's use of fear. We'll talk about the, the last element. But the third one, what's the political motivation of the shooter? The students are like, oh, we have no idea. I don't either yet. Well, you know, three years later, I think maybe maybe four years later, uh, the FBI has come out and said, we don't really understand we, we couldn't find any political motivation for this shooter, right? That was a mass murder event. That wasn't terrorism, right? They weren't, he wasn't, he just wanted to kill people, right? Mm. Um, it's not, it's not terrorism. So you have to have a political goal. The fourth component, which is really critical in any conflict um, that reaches U.S. consumers, like reaches us as media consumers or information, is this idea that terrorism targets a larger audience than its immediate victims. Okay, so so in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we see those news stories when the number of casualties are high or when it's women and children, right? When we play on those other uh, facets of the media center. But we also study empirically, we know that if an American is involved, is a victim of a terrorist attack, the amount of news coverage internationally is a factor four, five, six, seven times higher. And if it's a female American, at least according to Plooper and Neumeier's article, you're looking at 10 times more coverage for the same kind of mm. attack. Okay. So that doesn't mean that that person was the, like that person was targeted per se, but who's the audience of that terrorist organization who are abducting Americans or killing Americans, the, the U.S. public, if not the government. Okay. So I said all of that to say, at least according to the U.S. government, Hamas is a terrorist organization mm -hmm. okay, with those components that you need to have in it. And they conduct attacks. And if you look at the hostage taking, it's intentional for fear, but also for media coverage and for negotiation. Hamas also won a democratic election almost 15 years ago. Well, actually more than 15. Yeah, right around 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And they became a government, a government right? They won the majority house the majority of seats in um, their legislature. And so they're also a form of government. And so they provide health care, they provide child care, they provide schools, they are attempting to implement social welfare programs, um, especially in the in the 2010s. Uh, there were a number of very good, well, in my opinion, they're very good, very good <laughs> academic articles looking at like how do you deliver social benefits, you know, what we would call public goods. Well, shooting rockets, right? And so Hamas does both of these things. Now, um, in terms of kind of if we kind of answer the question, what's Hamas's role to the West Bank? So it's important to recognize Hamas operates in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, but Hamas governs the Gaza Strip. Their their central support is in the Gaza Strip. Um, their capabilities are in the Gaza Strip. And when we think about the West Bank and the Gaza Strip as the two concentrations of Palestinians in the larger territory, remember, they're land divided by the rest of the state of Israel. And so you have two different governments governing Palestinians, right? You have the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and you have Hamas in the Gaza Strip. That becomes important when we start to think about context and response and whether Hezbollah uh, 
would come from the north, from from Lebanon, like how how things may escalate as a, in a conflict setting. So, what is Hamas as it relates to your regular person? Um, there's actually been it came out today as I was looking for it as I prepped for today. There was a, a new um, public opinion survey that uh, was done in the Gaza Strip, and so uh, and they you know it was pretty good organization doing it. What we can see is that Hamas has generally enjoyed a moderate level of support from Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. So moderate, moderate here is anywhere from kind of 30 to 45%, right? So not enough to be elected president of the United States, but better than Congress, okay? What we've seen since the conflict, though, is a major increase in support for Hamas, mm. Um, you had you this particular poll had 57% of Palestinians supporting Hamas in terms of saying that they were justified in conducting the October uh, 7th attacks. Those numbers actually increase more if you look at the West Bank. Um, and there were some other questions in that survey that are very helpful. So one thing to keep in mind with those kinds of responses, it's not just the Israeli response to uh October 7th, that will drive that, right? So there's roughly been 18,000 Palestinians killed in the Israeli response, or at least those are the estimates, right? Well, there's 18,000 grieving families, right? That casualties are real, people are dying, and people are, are going to be motivated by that. But there's also kind of an academic point here that is worth thinking through it from an audience standpoint, is that one of the techniques of terrorism is to goad or to get the other side to punish your broader population mm. to make you more popular, which when we think of um, goading the other side, goading that response, when we there are, there are five tactics that terrorists use, or at least according to Kidd and Walter, one of them is provocation, which is this goading mechanism. And I'm not arguing that Hamas fully understood what the Israeli response would be, but they didn't need to to know that what they had planned and what they executed on October 7th was going to generate tremendous retribution from the Israeli side. Well, we know from, from other conflicts and from other studies that provocation can be very effective at improving your own standing. Because not only does it show your population that you're doing an action against the oppressor or against the empire or against the threat, the other side starts indiscriminate attacks that then propel your popularity and make the other side less popular. And so that's jargon. So let's take a step back and say that too. There are two types of attacks broadly we think about or use of state violence, discriminate and indiscriminate discriminant uses of violence, and, and Israel practices this. If I have time, I can get into this too. Well, practices in some cases. Discriminant violence means that you're you're specifically targeting individuals or support networks that target you or respond to you. Indiscriminate attacks would be almost population level engagements. Okay, so we can think about this in the U.S. context. Um, we the in, during World War II, the United States conducted discriminate bombing campaigns. Right, the U.S. Uh, daylight bombing was partly done so that we could target uh, economic centers to destroy Germany's ability to produce weapons. 
Okay. That's a discriminant attack, right? We we took heavier casualties than the British, but we could generally somewhat hit the target. A nuclear weapon is an indiscriminate weapon, right? So when we when the United States dropped it on um Nagasaki and it was off by several miles, like it didn't matter because it's an indiscriminate weapon. It does not know whether you're part of the war effort if you support the emperor or if you just you know, are a fisher person who goes out and brings fish in for the village. Like it doesn't, it can't tell. Okay. When we think of Hamas and Hamas's attack and potential response, these are the dynamics that need to be considered because Hamas was very specific in targeting civilians, in uh, targeting and the use of sexual violence, right? And, and the use of rape, um, the acquisition of prisoners, right? That's a weird way to say that, but the, the capturing of prisoners, when we think of things that are illegal under international law, those things violate the Geneva Convention. And it's clear cut, right? Hostage taking is not allowed by states. Hamas isn't a state, right? And they'd be the first to tell you, hey, we don't have a state. No, no, you don't. Does that mean they have to follow the same rules of engagement as the rest of the world attempts to do? Hmm, that, that's a deeper question that you have to start thinking about. On the flip side of that, we have to think, okay, um, bombing medical facilities is against the Geneva Convention. Okay, now the first instance is an interesting one, but the second instance of Israel um, going into hospitals in North Gaza, right, that doesn't mean they weren't necessarily justified, but it does become much less clear, right? What's the evidence that they that they were arguing Hamas used tunnels and and uh, we do know Hamas does this, you know, they put locations next to schools and other things. Um, but were they doing it in this case? If the answer to that is no, that's a war crime under international law. Hmm. If the answer to that is that yes, Hamas had fighters and locations and, and caches in these locations, then it becomes a little more, there's at least some level of interpretation. Okay. These are all critical things as we start to think about how these types of actors engage and interact because what has broken down largely over the last 30 years or so is the is state on state violence is less common. Okay, so like Russia invading the Ukraine, that's a that's not a rare event of another country invading another, but it doesn't happen very often. What has become more common over the last three decades are civil wars, which, you know, there are periods in the 19th century or 20th century that they, the number of them uh, increased precipitously. The 1990s is one of those periods, right? 1990 to 2005, 2006 or so. Another area of that conflict that we have to interpret and deal with kind of as a species is what do you do with non-state actors, especially sophisticated non-state actors, right? So Hamas uh, attacked by land, by sea and by air. Um, I don't know if, if they want a plaque or something, but they're probably the first terrorist organization who had the organizational capacity to conduct land, sea, and air operations. Al-Qaeda um, and the Talmud Tigers all conducted land, sea, and air attacks, but at different times hmm. and not in the same campaign. Hamas organized that in a single event. Um, Interesting. It doesn't matter how much Iranian support they received the because other terrorist organizations receive state support the fact is that they could do that um 
tells us something about the level of sophistication that they were able to bring into those events. Um, whether that has anything to do with their governance um, up until for most of Hamas's existence, their militant wing and the social service wings were very distinct, right? Commanders on one side had not really anything to do with people on the other. Uh, and that's where we start to see Palestinians, um, right? When a Palestinian says, well, I support Hamas, right? From from a U.S. perspective, you should probably ask that follow-up question of like, well, what do you mean by that, right? Because these are very distinct organizations. Um, in today's West Bank, or in today's Gaza Strip, I mean, there's not going to be any distinction, right? Hamas will help distribute the limited amount of aid that is entered into it. People are becoming sufficiently desperate. Hospitals are failing. Hamas is just a single entity at this point because of the horrors of of conflict and war. With everything that you've explained today, and it's been so educational, how does this affect the United States as well as other countries? Yeah, so October 7th, um, Dr. Hoffman is a professor at Georgetown. He's written um, Anonymous Soldier, which is kind of the history of the founding of Israel. Um, he's written a, a, a world-class book on introducing terrorism that, that many scholars use in their introductory courses. Um, uh, anonymous. He's written several other books, and his arguments are that October seventh will change numerous dynamics in the Middle East. Um, first, there there are two primary ones, and and I'll, uh, the U.S. isn't one of those two, but it helps set the context for the U.S. potential response. The first is that progress on the Abraham Accords, which is diplomatic recognition by Arab states like the UAE of Israel and their right to exist is is done for the foreseeable future. So there was debate. And if you go back to September or August of this year and look at news headlines and, and um, commentary, there was, there was potentially building momentum for Saudi Arabia to join that group. That That's really a, an important development if Saudi had, would be willing to do that. It further isolates Iran. It um, sanctions, so to speak, the existence of Israel from the regime that protects the two holy cities. So, you know, we're, we're, getting, we're diving into religion a little bit, but that's that's an important position for Saudi. Um, Hoffman's position and, and position of many others is essentially that that agreement framework is is done for the foreseeable future because Arab leaders cannot go back to their populations and say, hey, we signed a peace agreement. Well, Israel is bombing the Gaza Strip, is conducting massive land operations, uh, is in an extensive combat operation, so much so that they're running out of rockets. The U.S. has shipped rockets and artillery shells and um, tank ammunition. You know, it, it, you can't say, hey, you know, not without concessions. Um, that's an important component because from Hamas's perspective, I imagine they would look at the Abraham Accords and say, this undermines our long-term future because it, to the best of my knowledge, it doesn't have a phrase in the agreement that says either the Palestinians have the right of return. Okay, the right of return is this 
our idea or argument that all Palestinians, whether they have, uh, whether they were part of um, what Palestinians are called the tragedy, right, where they are forcibly moved off their land in 47, 48, 47, 47, 48, or just being of Palestinian descent, right? The right of return is this idea that all of them have the right to come back to their historic homeland, which is not that distinct from the Israeli state's argument that Jews from all over the world can come to Israel and become Israeli citizens, right? So there are some parallel here things there. The reason why that ending of the Abraham Accords moving forward is, is potentially either motivation for October 7th or further justification from Hamas's view is that it ends that discussion, right? That that, that process is over. Hoffman's other point um, which I think is really critical for the U.S. The other is is part of the is the U.S. has been the leader in in promoting negotiations um, and actually coming to agreements. Whether that was the um, Egypt Egypt Israel agreement in seventy nine, whether that is the Oslo Accords or the Oslo Two, right? The U.S. has played a fundamental role, even as a biased mediator. Right? I don't think we should pretend the U.S. doesn't have a clear favorite in this discussion. Um, but it still has that role. And, and then the Abraham Accords as well. Well, the second component becomes much more complicated for the U.S. as well. And this is that the Israelis, um, the Israeli state, it looks like, is signing up to operate the Gaza Strip for the foreseeable future. Right. The If you take the northern portion of the Gaza Strip that they have been conducting their most uh, intense operations in and including the current firefights going on today, the northern part of the Gaza Strip is uninhabitable um, and it will be for some, you know, without billions of dollars and years of rebuild, it's just not inhabitable. Well, if Israel is insistent on following through with the complete destruction of Hamas, which that's language they used October 7th, October 8th, October 9th. Um, some of that has been backed off some, but still not. We don't know exactly what they're going to require or what they'll demand from a security state perspective. And if it's the complete removal of Hamas, that will get um, we're only in the first phases of this conflict. If it's essentially eliminating Hamas's ability to function as both terrorist organization and public service provider, that may actually be getting closer. Then it becomes a question of how is Israel going to administer the wet, the Gaza Strip? Hmm. Uh, and this this is more than just the scholars will call this different things, whether it's the fence, whether it's uh, the security barrier, Right, Israel essentially built um, about a eight meter high or about a twenty foot high concrete barrier all the way around the Gaza Strip, and there, there's also um, chain link fence set off in Israeli. Well, again, depends on what where you start the story. Territory that Israel now holds mm -hmm. is the best way to say that. Um, we don't know what Israel is going to try to do, and I mean, what I mean by try to do is like the legalese, like the legal technicalities of whether occupation and those things uh, will lead to another discussion. From a security standpoint, where I 
do most of my work is this. How much more land is Israel going to demand to provide a security barrier to prevent another October 7th? That is a really, um, that's a huge question for U.S. policy. So I, I, I will come back to your original question, but the, the, these two issues set how the U.S. Um, can start to design policies and present policy options to the president and say, how, what do you want to do uh, in this case, Mr. President, right? Well, it, it's really going to come down to what, what Israel plans to do and then how much is the U.S. willing to tolerate whatever it is they come up with. Hmm. Because um, when we start thinking about human rights violations, when we start thinking about mass um, starvation, when we start thinking about outbreaks of cholera, Right. Anytime in the modern world you start to see cholera outbreaks, that's because your water system fails. Mm. Well, what what is the U.S. going to tolerate in terms of Israeli action before either halting support or or making internal diplomatic demands? Those are those are all things that that the State Department, DOD, our intelligence community, every single one of those organs within the U.S. government is writing policy memos like we do in my classes to say, here's the argument, you know, take a policy position. We have to let Israel do whatever they want. Okay. What's the argument for that? We have to end this thing today, not tomorrow, today, make an argument for that. Um, that's what the U.S. is going to be doing. And I, I think um, there's not, there's no utility in kind of saying this is what the U.S. should do, or this is what the U.S. might lean on. And the reason I would say that is, um, from our perspective, we don't have very, we don't have U.S. intelligence feeding us information that is critical in the decision-making process, right? What is healthy for us in an academic setting, in an undergraduate or graduate setting is to say, what do we know in the literature? What does the literature tell us about post-conflict resolution? Or what does the literature tell us about how do you generate a peaceful, not peaceful, a cessation of conflict, right? How do we stop violence? How do we rebuild? How do we provide X, Y, and Z? We have a lot of literature on that, those questions, you know, cross-nationally, usually since 1815 or 1950, depending on the data set, right? Those are the things that are helpful for us as a community to start to think through. Because ultimately, if we say this is what the U.S. should do, right, I would argue that unless you have, as an analyst, right, as an as an analyst, what until I have the information that I need, I can't render a recommendation or a decision. And sometimes that's tedious. Um, and what I mean by tedious is um, you think about like team building exercises, right? You can go through a team building exercise, and you say, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna go through this exercise where." we're all in a plane crash and we're going to try to survive. What are some of the techniques and things that we can bring to survive? Right? Well, which plane, right? Well, what, what does that matter? Well, it tells us a lot about the size and it, and it tells us a lot about potential shelter. It gives us also, a, a, maybe there's fuel. It gives us a lot of insight into what it might be carrying. Uh, what season is it? Right. Is this the winter? I'm from North Dakota, right? If it's winter and you're outside and you don't have equipment, mm -hmm. it's a short time window. Right. Uh, where is it? Right. When we think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the current war, which I think is the right term for for what's going on and what the U.S. should do or ought to do, the, those um, normative terms. I think it's actually much healthier to think to take that step back and say, OK, 
How do we build arguments for policy outcomes, whether that's peace tomorrow, whether that's, you know, the, the two ends of the continuum are, are pushing for, not pushing for, ceasefire tomorrow, Israel can do whatever it wants. Well, obviously the policy options, there's there's almost an infinite number of them in between these two extremes. And I think it's incumbent on us as academic communities to have those debates and have those discussions and say, okay, what is the what is the social science evidence that peace tomorrow may lead to X, Y, Z, right? What, what, what do we know from other conflicts or other statistical analysis that may help us moving forward? To end, you know, this, I know this is a question that is sort of unanswerable because it, it is so complicated, but, you know, moving forward, what are some potential avenues for resolution in this, in this war, in this conflict, you know, what in your mind and with your expertise, what do you understand or think could be the best way to move forward uh, from this point? Yeah. So I, um, when I think of this in tr truly intractable problems, and so what I mean by intractable, at least in my field, it typically has been going on for a couple of decades. Tens of thousands of people get killed. It's at the core of identity for both or all sides, right? People care about this topic. This isn't just um, something uh, flippant. It's part of it's part of their identity, their DNA. When I think about how how we move forward in something like this, the the first step is to stop fighting. But as I mentioned in the previous one, who determines that um, is an open question. And when when at this point Israel, because they're on the offensive, so to speak, uh, when Israel stops or when they pull back, that's. Um, you know, that's an Israeli government decision, and it's going to it's going to rest with um, it's going to rest with a government that is while it is quite right 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 oriented the liquid liquid party is is pretty right. It's also imperative to remember that in the Israeli elections, um, Netanyahu has been uh, tried for corruption like multiple times. Um, he failed to win majority of support. Um, in the Knesset for like four or five elections over a year and a half. This is Israel. The Israeli public is highly divided on the government. And then October 7th happened. Okay. They're still so divided that Netanyahu is not popular, right? So you think about 9-11, what happened after 9-11 in the United States? It's, it's what we call the rally effect. So we study this in other contexts. In group out group dynamics, you rally to support your flag, Right. What happened in 9-11? George Bush ended up with like a 93% approval rating from like 51. You know, he had been president for a little while, so it went from like 53 down. Right. Usually the president starts uh, with about 51 to 53% approval in the United States because typically the majority wins. Right. Electoral college is a little different, but typically the majority wins. Well, you know, I think shoots up to like 93. And it, if you look at the chart, it's insane. Right. Like. You do this class exercise and you, you point out events and you put different presidents of the United States up there and students have a general idea of a world event. And then you put you put it other there's certain presidents who, who basically it's just kind of up down right within that normal band. And then you put Bush up there like, wow, that's a rally effect. October 7th, you would expect to be a massive rally effect. But Netanyahu is so deeply unpopular. People are like that doesn't 
like, yeah, we need to defend ourselves or whatever, but that doesn't mean I support you. That's a huge question when we think about moving forward in the short term in terms of what, how much does the Israeli electorate and Israeli politicians, where is their line to stop? That's that's really the question that needs to be asked. In terms of some kind of broader, longer term, can peace in the Middle East happen? Yeah, sure. I'm super optimistic. I study conflict my whole adult life, and uh, you know, it doesn't matter which century you're in. We just seem to kill each other all the time. Okay, <laughs> that actually is a true statement, kind of just broadly. Um, but I, I think that leadership, true political leadership does happen. Like if you study us as a species, there are moments where leaders rise to the top. And I mean, real leaders, leaders who are willing to upset their own people, or at least segments of their own people for peace or for development or for a conclusion to an event that can actually happen. I'm not deeply optimistic it's going to happen anytime soon, but it could. And that short of transformational leadership, you're not going to have it because what um, what the literature shows us is that when you do negotiations, you typically can actually find a negotiated settlement with the other side when you most disagree with that other side, right? I'm, I'm paraphrasing a, my favorite article from graduate school, which was by Andrew Kidd. Um, AJPS, it, it, it finds essentially, not essentially, it finds in, in game theoretic models that you, well, the model he did, it was a single model. You can have a negotiated settlement when you have a biased mediator. And then obviously he uses the U.S. in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? The, the U.S. is biased. There's no way to, to get around it. That doesn't mean the U.S. can't actually forge, agree, help forge agreements because both sides know the U.S. is biased. Well, when we think about a long-term settlement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you will need a transformational leader on both sides who is willing in the Israeli side to pull back settlements, to give up uh, sovereignty. But on the, on the Palestinian side, you're going to need a leader who will tap down the most extreme portions of Hamas. And that so one of the other tactics, I mentioned this earlier in an answer, one of the other tactics of terrorism is called spoiling, which is you're moving towards peace and you have a group, not even the, the big group, but you have a subsection of uh, just enough people, usually a, a specific group, that is willing to use more violence to, to kill the peace process or to generate a provocation. Mm-hmm. You're going to have – you have that distribution anywhere – that you have terrorist organizations or you have organizations using violence because not everybody has the same opinion on what the goals should be, right? In the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you're going to need transformational leaders who on the Israeli side are willing to give up land and security and on the Palestinian side are willing to give up on other issues in particular, making sure that a October 7th type attack by a spoiler organization doesn't happen. Um, and we can see this conflict. We, we see this literature being played out extensively. So um, leading up th- throughout the negotiations between the U.S. government and the Taliban in um, Afghanistan, um, not like leading into that, the year before the pullout, I said, look, go look at the conflict. Conflict's going to increase. The Taliban are going to start increasing attacks 
to gain bargaining leverage as negotiations start. And sure enough, like it, it doesn't, it expands some, right? Not, not a tremendous amount because they controlled a tremendous amount of the territory already, but they did start to elevate those conflicts, right? So there are principles of, of bargaining and conflict that we can apply to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but um, you're going to need a tran- transformational leaders on both sides. Um, and that means willing to, um, I like to think of it in the U.S. context. This is the president who comes in and says, I'm one and done. Like, listen, I don't want to be here for eight years. I'm here for four. There are, you know, there there is 50 things that 65% of Americans agree on, which is, you know, and this is true. Like, these are all things that we need to do as a society. And there is a majority of Americans, if you just ask them, should we do this? They'd be like, yes. But in the U.S., it doesn't fit in the liberal bucket or the conservative bucket or the Democrat or Republican bucket. And so what presidents are like, well, no, I don't, you know, it becomes, I hate to say it, but it becomes political. Mm-hmm. Right? You need a, a leader of courage who be like, listen, this might be a short tenure, but this is what it will take for peace. Um, it turns out we don't, you know, as a species, we produce these leaders, but they don't come around very often. Ben, we cannot thank you enough for this perspective and the education that you have provided us in a very complex situation, as you outlined. Um, Thank you so much for being a guest on the Vision podcast. Um, And I... From what you've told us, it sounds like we will be having you back. <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity and I hope that it is helpful. And obviously anyone listening to this, if they have questions, they can find me uh, online and we'll be in touch. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. And if you have an idea for our podcast um, or any questions about the show, please email me, Karen Brown at kbrown at dnas.msstate.edu. Thank you so much for listening. 